You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. I'm excited at the response of my book, Open Wounds, which was released on February 9th. And if you haven't already, please go to Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or FortressPress.com to order your copy. And don't forget to give a rating and review on Amazon for me. And if you prefer the audio version, don't worry. It's in the works and soon to come. I'll update and announce as soon as it's released. You know, sometimes when I think about guests for the show, I plan it out. I try to figure out who's the best guest to speak to issues that need to be discussed at the time. Then there are times I just have to follow my gut in the moment, still considering the times and whether a guest or guests can speak to the issues that are relevant in that season. This week's guests are two young women who fit the ladder. After I was a guest lecturer panelist this past week for a class at Baylor University entitled Disrupting Racial Disparities in Healthcare at the invitation of Dr. Stephanie Body and hearing the insights from the students, I felt that I needed to have these voices on the show if they would be willing to come on. I felt like I need to have voices that represent the future leaders in the work of justice and anti-racism and not just pastors, leaders, professors, and what have you of today. And my guests this week are Sabrina Carter and Christian Howard. They're both pursuing a master's in social work degree at Baylor University. Sabrina is a veteran of the Navy and we are grateful for her service. A native of Northern California, she is co-founder and president of BLMSW, Black Leaders Moving Social Work at Baylor. And in her research, she examines decolonization and anti-racist practices. She presents her passion for justice as a GSSW race equity team member, that's Garland School of Social Work race equity team member, specializing in curriculum and research efforts to incorporate diverse, inclusive, and equitable opportunities for black, indigenous, and people of color. Christian Howard is a native of the great state of Georgia, and in her research specializes in community practice, aspiring to build the capacity of communities to address social determinants of health and amplify community voices in critical decision-making processes. As an intern at Prosper Waco, Christian participates in various health working groups and conducts research on women's health drivers such as black maternal mortality, access to care, and teen pregnancy. She's currently a graduate re research assistant on the Singing History, Reclaiming Spirituals and the Beloved Community Project, and the Waco Teen Food Insecurity Project. She's also a teaching assistant for the course Disrupting Racial Health Disparities. I want to welcome my guests to the show, and I am certain you will be engaged enlightened and inspired by this conversation with these leaders of not just the future, but right now. Welcome, Christian, Sabrina, to the show Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. We're gonna, we're gonna park a little bit at the intersection of uh, race, as we, as we do every week here, culture, black history, uh, and theology. I really want people to hear your insights I had the pleasure of, of meeting Sabrina in a class that I was involved in. 
sharing at, at Baylor, the class that she was uh, she was taking. And I, I just was blown away by the insights, the, the, the maturity, the, 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 the wisdom from Sabrina and the other students. And um, Dr. Body recommended Christian as well. And I just I just really wanted to get them on the on the show. So I thank you for just the last minute this week being willing to jump on and have this conversation with me. So I want to start with people um, getting a chance to know who you are. So either either one of you can go first. Um, where are you from? Tell us where are you from? What led you to Baylor? And, and tell us one fun thing about you, one hobby, your favorite city, favorite movie. Uh, I'll call you out if I don't like your movie, though, and your song. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Who wants to go first? Sabrina. Okay, I'll <laughs> go first. <laughs> so I am originally from the California Bay Area. Um, the city is San Leandro. Um, Google describes it as the suburbs of Oakland, California, uh, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> My favorite movie, I'm going to say my favorite movie in this past year um, was Jingle Jangle on Netflix. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Oh, you got to watch it. Really? Christian gives it a thumbs up. Okay, okay. Yes, that, that was... Mm. What, 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 was it, what, was it, what about the movie was so good? It was so good because it's a Christmas movie, but it's not a traditional Christmas movie. And there's not traditional roles. Yes. Yes, it's a, it's about a little black girl going out and doing like STEM work, basically. Like she wants to, yes, she wants to be a toy maker and make the toys come alive. It was. Wow. It was okay. Okay. I'm sold. <laughs> yes. I'm sold. I'm sold. I'm going to check um, it out. Yes. Um, what led me to Baylor? Um, I would say divine timing. Okay. So I was transitioning out of the Navy. Uh, with a permanent physical disability that should have been temporary uh, if the Navy took my pain seriously. Um, the pandemic was just starting at that time when I was in the middle of this transition and I had to return to Texas because that's where my personal belongings were because I enlisted here. So I wanted to come back. I knew I wanted to come to social work and I knew that I wanted to disrupt racial inequalities. Um, so my plan was to go back to the University of Mary Hardin Baylor, but they did not have an MSW program. So I figured Baylor being the sister school of UMHB, uh, it would have a similar atmosphere and learning experience. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's, that's some journey. That's some journey. I'm sure we're going to circle back to some of that. Um, <laughs> Christian, tell us about who are you? Who is Christian Howard? Yes. Um, well, before I do, I do want to say thank you for your service, Sabrina. Um, yes. <laughs> thank yes. you so for having us on. Um, definitely a huge honor. So thank you for that. Um, yes, Christian, I am from the south side of Atlanta. I grew up uh, in Jonesboro, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. And uh, about me, hmm, I've always been pretty imaginative and creative person. Um so in terms of hobbies, uh, art was a big one for me, painting and drawing landscapes. Uh, I started doing that in high school and it kind of doubled as a hobby, but also an escape route. Um, so there's a lot going on around me, uh, disruptive things happening in my community. Uh, my family and I experienced firsthand many of the disparities and the social problems that 
we hope to dismantle. Um, and so, yeah, art really became kind of my safe space. Um, but through that, I also discovered social work, uh, especially community practice um, as a route for me to align myself with things that I believed in and um, really to set myself up to be in a position to make a difference in my community and communities like mine. Um, so yeah, that, that context really awakened that desire for me to become a social worker. Um, so I completed my undergrad degree in social work at Georgia State University. Um, and then I took a year off and decided to serve with AmeriCorps. And that is what led me ultimately to Texas and to Waco and the organization I served with was Texas Hunger Initiative, which is now Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. Uh, and they are housed within the Baylor School of Social Work. So that was my introduction to that. Through that work, I met Dr. Body, and ultimately I decided to attend Baylor for my MSW. So. Wow, wow. Thank, thank you both for sharing. I, 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 I'm taking notes as you're, as you're speaking and, and two things you have in common. And as I shared before we, we started this, I thought you would have known each other um, not, not because you're two black students at Baylor, <laughs> but because of your Dr. Body connection. I thought you would have, you would have had some connection, um, there on campus, but two, two things you both talked about is the, the word dismantle or disrupt seems to be a part of, of what you, you feel called to do and service is, is, is are two things is that, that linked the two of you, um, which, which I, I can appreciate Tell us a little bit more about the um, the dismantling and disrupting. Um, why why is that important, particularly right now where we are? Because I want I want to I want to talk about where we are, but why is that important to you? The disrupting and the dismantling of structures, systems, disparities, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, did you want to go, Serena? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Um, I see it as really essential to my well-being. Um, so when I think about dismantling things um, like structural racism or medical racism, for example, um, it's a matter of life and death a lot of times. Um, so one of the things that in my current field placement I get to kind of study and look at is Black maternal mortality. Um, and diving into that has really like opened my eyes in a lot of ways. Um, and it has real implications, not just for, okay, these numbers that I'm researching or the women who've had these experiences, but for myself and how I see my future as a black woman, um, if I'm ever to decide to become a mother. And so um, it's more than implicit bias. It's more than one or two people and staff, like it's a system that needs to really be restructured um, in order to ensure safety. And there's no reason that black maternity death rate or black maternity rate, uh, mortality rate should be three times that of white women. Exactly. There's no reason for that in the United States. So yeah, it's, it's essential to me for life. So, so if someone were to ask how do we do that? What, what, from your education, from your experience, from your, you're just reflecting on that. Um, what would you say to that person? How do we do that? Disrupt the system? Uh, Cause it obviously it needs to happen, but how do we do that? 
even if you just gave yes. a starting point? Yes, that's a great question. And one that as a student studying and researching, one that frustrates me a lot, um, especially like as a social worker, okay, we want to do, but how do we disrupt something that insidious? The real answer is, I don't know. Um, but if I could think of a starting place, um, some things that I've seen done is people having, uh, building those partnerships between the community and the healthcare settings, the way that you would between the community and police. So how do health professionals understand people in the communities? How do they understand the context that Black women come from? Um, not in terms of thinking, oh, you know, it's about more education on prenatal care. Yeah, that may be part of it, but it's also about recognizing cultural differences and environmental differences that dictate how we respond <laughs> to healthcare and how we respond um, to doctors. Um, so I think that building that bridge is a starting place. That's good. That's good. That's good. Sabrina, do you want to add anything to that? You want to share? Sure. Um, I was thinking a whole bunch of things as you were talking, Christian. Um, one word that came to my mind was structural violence. Um, I don't think any of the systems were made for us. And in fact, I think they were built from white supremacy. So they're never going to work for us. I really think the disruption and the dismantling of these systems is really starting over. They need to be reimagined. They need to be rebuilt. Um, you and I discussed this um, after class, but I really think changing things from uh, a higher a hierarchy into what I was telling you about um, egalitarian pluralism, where everyone has a seat at the table. It's making space for for all people. Yeah, and, and then and I think we talked about, then you got the whole power dynamics at play. Right. Because there, there will be power dynamics that are going to fight and resist. I mean, historically we've seen it, to maintain right. that hierarchical structure and who, who, who has the positions in the hierarchy. Not just the structure, exactly. but who holds the positions. And so those power dynamics are at play. So this is, you know, as I'm thinking about it, I, I get a little depressed sometimes. I'm like, oh, it's, it's just a nonstop. It's, it's, it's one thing, it's an idea here. Okay, we got to do this, but then we got to fight this over here that's going to try to resist and, you know. Um, so much has been going on in the past 12 months, as we, as we know. Um, as students in a, a pandemic, um, witnessing what we did regarding George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and news of Breonna Taylor, and so many other videos, election chaos, insurrection, uh, the, 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 the trial that just ended today. We can go on and on. How do you, how do you stay focused on what you're called to do, what you're passionate about? I mean, I have some thoughts as a student myself, but I want to hear from you. How are you able to stay focused as black students in a white university? And when I was an undergrad, I won't say how many years ago, when I was an undergrad, I was at HBCU. That would be considered a safe space, right? 
having gone to uh, gone back to school and been in, in white contexts, we have to find safe spaces within that. But how do you even stay focused? Um, how have you been able to stay focused? Because I know you will, I know you are, I know you will um, during this time in the spaces that you're in. Especially with wanting to dismantle and disrupt as part of your DNA. Uh, that's a tough question. It's it's tough. For sure, it's tough. Um, I don't know. For me personally, I'm I'm trying to flip these negatives into something positive. So when I first got to Baylor, I was I was bothered <laughs> <laughs> that it was completely different from where I'm from, and I'm just not used to that. I guess Southern culture where there's this unspoken segregation that happens and I, I went to the dean I wrote a two to three page single space letter I didn't know this man at the time I just I just knew I was bothered and I needed to say something um, and luckily he was receptive to what I had to say and that turned into me Asia and Sam co-founding the Black Leaders Moving Social Work, which we want to be a safe space for Black students. Okay. Um, yeah. Wow. wow. So, so you turned, you channeled this, or you used this opportunity, this season, um, to create, essentially. To not just sit in it, but use it as fuel. Um, you, 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 you took this opportunity to reimagine because uh, when we go back to talking about dismantling and, and disrupting, that's what's required, the creativity. Um, but also what's required is, is the suffering. I don't know if we create these spaces. I don't know if we create these opportunities without the suffering, uh, without the trials and the challenges. So you, you took advantage of that. Um, yeah. It reminded me a lot um, about what you were saying in class about the Han. I kept going back and forth about that term because I was like, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing is is trauma good or is trauma bad is it good to bond over trauma or is it not good to bond over trauma um that was just something that i've been sitting with it's a great question i wrote a paper last spring asking the question dr king said you know suffering is redemptive he talked about redemptive suffering and so my question was is trauma redemptive and, and, and is trauma and suffering the same thing, which there's a distinction between the two. Um, and I think I think it can be good. Um, it depends on on who it is. I, I, I preached a sermon once where I talked about renaming trials, where it says count it all joy. The, the verse that says in James says count it all joy. Well, we use that. We weaponize that for, for people who are going through things. And we tell them just count it all joy to kind of dismiss what they're feeling in their season. And that's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying, rename the trial and the suffering. Put, put a name to it. So what I do is, like say, for instance, someone says something that's insulting to me or they're, they're doubting my ability to accomplish something. Rather than wallowing in that, I rename it. I call it food okay, keep feeding me. Now I use that to drive me, 
Not that I need any more incentive, but I use that much like you did with the pandemic, with this season or with coming to Baylor and, and this experiencing this kind of culture shock. Um, you use that to create something. And so um, I think it kind of goes back to what Christian said about well-being, um, being mindful of your well-being. Christian, do you want to add anything to to what she said? Sure, yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that you bring up like naming things um, because when I think about the last 12 months and all of the things that have happened, the name that comes to my mind is really like insidious. Um, I think that as a student and even in the summer before school restarted, um, it's kind of like this static or white noise in my head that I'm like, okay, what is this? How do I make sense of this? And it's like, I'm not, we realize, but maybe we don't fully realize the effect that that collective trauma really has watching people that look like me be murdered. I mean, Ahmaud Arbery was murdered in Georgia. I was in Georgia at the time, you know, granted hours away, but still, and it's like seeing that and recognizing myself in each of those people, yes, it has an insidious effect. Um, and so it's like on one hand, we're, or I'm in this place of like, oh, shock and kind of frozen in place. And um, on the other hand, it's like, well, life is moving. You've got to move. Like, here we are in class. Things have to be done. Um, and so maybe in part to Sabrina's point, maybe that's also exaggerated by the fact that we're in a majority white context, which is the opposite of what I'm used to. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I think that probably makes it more, I guess, a more strong or underscored effect uh, to be in these class spaces where on one hand, people may acknowledge it, they may, you know, say a word or two, but we don't have the space and the time to process. Uh, and I think that that definitely builds up. So it, it just feels like this building static, this building pressure um, that every day is like, okay, well, how are we going to work through this today? How am I going to be the student they want me to be? And also true to my experience as a black woman and, you know, the collective sorrow that I'm feeling. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Speak more, either one of you, about the culture shock moving to Texas. Um, you said something interesting, Sabrina, that you weren't used to the culture in Texas, the segregation, it was a different experience. And I'm imagining along racial lines, it's just a different experience from where you're from. Here's what's interesting. Yes. I'm from South Carolina. I've lived in, went to school in North Carolina, lived in Maryland, lived in New York, moved to LA. When I moved to LA, I expected LA to just be this utopian, everyone, it's cool, we're, we're good. I don't have to deal with racists like that. Mm. Let me tell you, I've yep. dealt with more in-your-face bigotry in Los Angeles than I ever did in the South. Mm. I'm talking about being threatened with the N-word. I'll come back here and kill you, N-word. Wow. More than once. 
um, not those exact words, but threatened more than once um, on church campuses, by the way. Um, <clears throat> never experienced that in the South. So this was a bit of a culture shock for me when I started to have those experiences out here. Um, talk about that, that culture shock, that shift being, being in Texas, um, which can sometimes feel like its own country. <laughs> yep. And, and let me just clarify, Southern California is totally different than Northern California. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but there, there are still some areas up north. If you go all the way up north, there are some areas that we just don't go to. Um, but yeah, it, it was specifically Baylor um, because I went to Texas A&M, Central Texas for undergrad, and I didn't feel that. But there was a lot of diversity there. Where here it's not as much. Not as much. So you kind of feel it. I don't know how to describe the feeling. It's like you walk into a space and you know that you're different. Okay. And I don't know how to explain that any better. It's yeah. just like it's it's a very distinct feeling when you walk into a space, and then it's. I don't know. It's it's the white professors just unlearning racism or their racist perspectives for the very first time and you kind of having to be a part of their learning experience, which just adds to racial trauma is what I'm how I'm going to describe that. Yeah, um, it's uncomfortable. Um, and, and when I first got to Baylor, I definitely questioned why I chose to be there in the first place. And that's why I said it was divine timing. And I, I do think it's where I'm supposed to be. I had to witness this. Okay. Okay. Christian, any culture shock oh. for you? I mean, you're, you're from Atlanta area. So how Yes. Um, yeah, I resonate with that. Um, I'll be candid. I did not want to come to Baylor. I actually put it off for an entire year um, because my introduction to Waco was working at an organization that was within Baylor School of Social Work. Um, but my introduction as an AmeriCorps VISTA was very outward facing. Um, so I'm in this university context of this very wealthy PWI, but when I'm going to work in the community, I'm going across, like Waco is literally segregated by a river. I'm going across the river to see a completely different landscape uh, and where all the black people are, so to speak. Um, and so my introduction to it was not hey, here's this school, this great program. It was, there's this large institution that has hurt this community in a lot of ways to the point where I have to be careful saying who I work for when I'm coming and trying to do needs assessments and, you know, trying to understand the community. So I had some resistance, uh, even in where I was living around wealthy students, wealthy white students. Yes, they put off a very different air. Um, and that's not where I came from. My community back home is 69% Black. <laughs> I grew up uh, in public housing. I 
that's just not the world that I came from. Um, so yeah, it was very, very shocking. Um, and I have been in context back home where I was one of few black people, but that wasn't the larger context of my community. So it was completely different coming here to where it's not just the school, it's the community mm. having microaggressions in church, having people not want to shake my hand. Yeah, it's been, it was a huge culture shock. Um, and so maybe in some way it's divine that I'm here too, or divine that I cross paths with Dr. Body. Um, yes. Yeah, because it was not, it was not a first decision at all. <laughs> so, so going back to the word disrupt, do you think that that's that the experience, I don't know the answer to this, is necessary to disrupt? Like we could be in our safe space all the time and trying to disrupt from way over here. Change over there, change that stuff over there. Or do we have to be in the, in the, in the stuff in order to disrupt? I don't know the answer to it. I'm just throwing it out there. I, I had a couple of thoughts. Okay. So first, um, this past, I don't know, this past week I did a presentation in one of my classes. Um, and it was on whatever I wanted it to be on. And so I chose uh, social justice, which is one of our core values in the social work practice. And I educated my classmates on three black social workers. And one of them was Whitney Moore Young Jr. And a quote that really resonated with me that he said was, someone has to work within the system to change it. And that really like, it motivated me. It was like, you know what, you're right. We need to take up space. We need to be in these uncomfortable situations. And it's, it's pain that's been happening for a long time, I think, right, mm -hmm. with our ancestors. And it's, we, we keep making steps towards better change. And I think that we do need to be a little bit uncomfortable to make those changes. But at some point, we're going to stop being uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think 2020 has done that. I think 2020, and I was going to ask you both, you made one of you mentioned that you're more aware. I think Sabrina, you mentioned you're more aware in 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 in, in Waco of your blackness of the, the because of the segregation. And you mentioned redlining is very apparent. Um, and I wonder if 2020 heightened that awareness because we've had to slow down. We've had to shelter in place for a while. Life all over has slowed down. So much has our attention. We're not as busy, presumably, um, as we normally are. Has 2020 heightened that awareness that you made things you may have missed a year ago, even about yourself? I think so. Um, it's like you said, like we're kind of forced to slow down. So now we have to look at these things and kind of take these things in with less busyness. Yeah, it's, we're getting the mirror in front of our face, so to speak. Um, 
Yeah, I think so. And then something that I was thinking of as Sabrina was talking about disrupting and like having to be in that uncomfortability. Um, we were on a call with the Central Texas Association of Black Social Workers last week and someone recommended uh, um, Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, and I've just about finished <laughs> uh, reading it because I was like, oh, I am late to the game. I got to catch up. Um, but something that I guess in also being more aware of my Blackness and the church experience that I mentioned briefly here in Waco, it kind of pushed me in the direction of, okay, as a Black person, who is Jesus? <laughs> because white supremacy and Jesus don't align in my mind. And no. so thinking about having to be in that uncomfortability, I'm thinking of how Jesus's life was. He didn't come in as someone in the highest order. He came into an impoverished family. He was Jewish. They were under the foot of Rome at the time. And what that means for us is trying to, you know, disrupt our own oppression, <laughs> these oppressive systems is, yeah, well, maybe we did have to be born into black skin and, you know, walk in these shoes <laughs> to really connect to um, what the endurance that is gonna take in order to disrupt, because it's not, like Sabrina said, we're make, we've made small steps and sometimes that's two steps forward and like eight back. So I think for sure we have to be in position um, in order to really connect to what it's gonna take to have that longevity. That's good, that's good. Sabrina? Mm. She said that just right. <laughs> You know, I, I, I'm thinking of this idea of disruption, and I want to get into um, Black History Month topic in just a second. But just thinking about disruption, and, and both of you mentioned the divine, divine timing. Um, a professor once said to me, re recently said to me, um, Dawn Henderson, Dr. Dawn Henderson, she talked about, breathing being an act being activism for black people just breathing we were never taught how to breathe and then i i i, I reflected on that and i would i would even add and i'm sure i'm not the first person to say this but our presence is disruption and i guess that's what kind of well why i was asking that question can we disrupt anything without our presence there. Mm. We talk about Jesus. The very presence of Jesus was disruptive. I mean, on a spiritual level, on a demonic level, Jesus walked in the room, they started calling his name, why are you here, type of thing. That's what's required of us, unfortunately. That's what's required of you for the next 30, 40, 50 years, God willing. Is your presence is disruption before you even say a word. Listen, 
Your breathing is disruption. You said it earlier. The system was not originally designed for us to flourish. It wasn't designed for us to breathe in. So as we learn to breathe, that's why those safe spaces are important. Those safe spaces are places that allows us to breathe. Right? As we learn to breathe in those places, we disrupt. And so I think it's important that people who are listening, who are in the same predicament. You know, at my, at my institution a couple of years ago, we had a protest. Black students protested. And it's, in, it's interesting that at Fuller Seminary, it's interesting that we had um, hospital masks on. So everyone has to wear a mask today. Where we, we, we during the protest, we all wore the masks for the toxicity towards black students. We couldn't breathe is essentially what we were saying. If it's toxic, you can't breathe in a healthy way. And I think for people who are listening to what you, you both are saying, I want them to take away that, that idea of disruption. Um, all of us are not going to be able to sing to the choir, preach to the choir. All of us won't be in our own spaces where it's safe all the time. Um, I talk to um, people of color, not just black folks, but people of color all over the place, whether they be Latinx, Asian, um, Native, Native American, when they're in white spaces and even some, some white allies in white spaces whose eyes have been opened and they have struggled in those spaces. And so I'm hoping that they hear this idea of disruption. It requires them to be present in those places and not to run from it and to see it possibly as divine appointments. You know, someone asked me one, one time I was going through a serious, a very tough time. And he said, how do you preach going through the stuff you're going through? And I didn't know how to answer it at first. And I thought back to my life growing up and I said, I'm built for this. You two are built for this. As I'm listening to you, you're built for this. I just want to I just want to pause and encourage you and speak that to you. You're built for this. You have the insight, you have the wisdom, you ha you seem to have the vision, you seem to have the history and the foundation. You're built for this. I knew there was a reason why I wanted you, you, you both, you, you, you on this, this show. Um, so we're in the midst of Black History Month. We're dead smack in the middle of Black History Month. Um, tell us what that means for you. And then talk to us about, share a, a figure in history or currently, whether famous or not, that you would like to just speak about that has influenced your life. I, I can go first. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, so Black History Month to me is a celebration of our Black ancestors and the trailblazers in American history, because people tend 
to think that they're two different things. Black mm-hmm. history is American history. Um, it's a way of remembering and not losing our truth, right? We have to we have to keep speaking our truths in order to make change. Um, and and that's what it is to me. Um, all of the black men in my life have helped shape the lens in which I view the world. This includes my dad, this includes my uncles, and this includes my cousins. I learned from their unfair life experiences and saw the racial biases that people have towards them for simply being black men with dark skin. I listened to their stories of fitting a description and being arrested and harassed or more. It's, it's watching my dad try to come to my rescue when police are harassing me in front of my home, but he can't because he's fearing for his own life simultaneously. He has to raise his hands in the air to make the police feel safe in his presence. It's watching my younger cousin be consumed by the criminal justice system as a child. Um, Men that I view as loving, sensitive, and caring, opposite words than what we hear in the media. Um, I intend to be radical, like Angela Davis, like Ida B. Wells, and W.E.B. Dubois. Um, Angela Davis challenged the prison and immigration systems. Ida B. Wells spoke out against lynching. And W.E. Dubois stood up to racial inequality and was the first black man to graduate from Harvard. Mm. I I plan to use his quote that he said when he graduated from Harvard and put it on my graduation cap when I graduate. Um, But if challenging injustice and racism is radical, then as John Lewis says, I I will be up to good trouble. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Christian. Yes. um, Amen to that. Um, (laughs) For me, I think, like Sabrina said, it's a time to pause and reflect um, and just put some intentionality to honoring um, those that came before us. Um, But I think this year, another thing that's been standing out to me during this time is how much Black history is being made every day, um, especially with women like Madam Vice President, with Stacey Abrams, with Amanda Gorman. Um, I'll even shout out the founders of BLM SW at Baylor because, I mean, it's historic for the university. We've never had a Black group, uh, a Black student group in school social work. Um, so I think it's, it's really, phenomenal to be in a time where we can watch ourselves win and watch um, history in the making in a positive way, Um, especially after everything that's happened this past year. Um, And yeah, so Black figures, I'm going to go the author route. (laughs) Um, Maya Angelou stands out. 
I was in seventh grade when I read I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Um, and just her work, Lorraine Hansberry, Phyllis Wheatley, Toni Morrison, um, all the Black women that wrote the stories that I could see myself or see my aunts or see my mom in, um, that was just a huge part of shaping how I looked at the world and how I looked at, um, like you were saying earlier, how we take trauma and use it for fuel, use it for food. Um, to basically generate creativity and speak life in the midst of, you know, being broken down. So yeah, they were really inspirational to me. So good, so good, so good. You know, when I was thinking about who has influenced me the most, I always think about those names. Langston Hughes comes to mind Martin Luther King obviously comes to mind for me. He is central to my research. Um, what influenced me to pursue what I pursue? Who influenced me to pursue what I pursue? But as you as you both were, were speaking, it made me think about my mom, my mom's role in black history and my mom's role in my life in shaping who I am. Before I was anything else, I was a poet. Before I'm anything else, I realized this. I've been a poet longer than I've been an athlete. And I've been an athlete since fourth grade. And when you said Maya Angelou, she and Langston Hughes, and then I would say Nikki Giovanni after that are the three most influential literary figures for me. Langston would be number one, Maya number two, if I had to rank them. I don't even know if it's fair to rank such powerful figures. But I never thought I could be a poet. This, this, is, th this goes, you know, mm, here it is. This goes back to what, um, Sabrina, you said, not losing our truth. And it's a way of remembering. And I watched, I listened to both of you link the past and the present. Like black history, Christian, you said black history, like basically those who are making black history now. And so it forced me to start to think about myself as part of black history. And then my mom is that link because I never thought I could be a poet reading them. I always thought that was for poet. That's for them. They're the poets, right? And one day my mother wrote a poem to my grandmother for Mother's Day. And I read it. I was in the fourth grade and I was blown away. I thought what she wrote was just as good as what Maya and Langston wrote. That's the day I became a poet. And I began to win poetry contests. And I've been writing ever since. I had a disruption with sports. When sports came into play in high school and college, I stopped writing. And then once sports was gone, I started writing again, then performing, and that led me to ministry, so on and so on. And poetry is, in everything I do, I still write. It's in my book. Every chapter has a, a piece. Um, but what you both said made me think about the truth of black history in my own family. And I've never really thought about black history in that respect mm -hmm. that my mom's role 
just like your, 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 the men in your family's roles, my mom's role in black history for me personally. And so for anyone listening, be mindful to remember the people in your everyday as part of black history, as part of American history and not separate the two. You got you, you, you ladies going to cause me to write a whole nother book from what you're saying. I got notes down here and them. ideas are all over the place. So we're going to wind down in, in just a few. What what my, my next question, I think you already answered it was going to be how is your, your social location shaped your your understanding of race or racism? I don't know if you want to revisit that because I think you, you both touched on on how where you, you're from and Baylor have shaped have shaped it um let's go a little bit further then how has your research maybe deepened your understanding of race and racism again you may have already touched on this a bit but explicitly what is something that okay let's do this let's tie the two together what's something from your social location whether it be upbringing or Baylor that's caused you to reflect and has influenced your research. And then on the other side of that research, you've come out with, okay, this is some, I want to explore this. If that makes sense. Yeah, that, it makes sense. Okay. Um, I'm actually here like, yes, I'm glad you asked the question in that way. <laughs> um, so I'm working with Dr. Body. Um, on a project called Singing Histories, Reclaiming, let me make sure I get the title right, Singing Histories, Reclaiming Spirituals and the Beloved Community. Um, and it's essentially a project focused on establishing worship practices that help African-American churches reconnect with the spirituality um, and the social justice legacy of the African-American church that we might think of when we think of Dr. King's church. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of personal things tie into that um, for me. So part of what I've been working on with her is cataloging Black churches and looking through the websites and looking through their sermons and kind of trying to, or I guess, not guess, but <laughs> derive where they might be on the spectrum of being very social justice heavy or being more conservative. Um, and so for me, um, I did not grow up in a black church. So my community back home is 69% African-American. Um, when I went to college, my school was a minority majority school. Georgia State graduates or gives degrees to, I think the most African-Americans out of any university in the country. Um, every year they've been near the top for that. So my experience was not that I was a minority per se, but at the same time, that's in my secular experience in church. There's a church in my community uh, that my family started going to when I was 11 or so. Um, it's over a hundred years old, but it's a majority white church mm. because the community has shifted over time uh, to become the 69% Black that it is now. Um, and so that was not always the case. But growing up in that context, 
at church, social justice is not a topic. Um, that's not, it was not something that we talked about, not something we entertained. Uh, if Martin Luther King was mentioned, he was mentioned with other pastors and preachers that, you know, may or may not have been black. Um, and so my experience was not one where we had Negro spirituals. So coming into this project has been really interesting to me to look at the church in this context um, and to see what in my mind should be a natural association anyway. The church and the mission for social justice should go together. Um, and so, yeah, my experience is just very different from that of my parents. Um, part of my mom's childhood was spent in Ebenezer Baptist Church. Okay. But leaving Atlanta and moving a little bit further south, things really shifted. Um, so, yeah, it's been really eye-opening to see how scripture and social justice mission go together and how the church is the vessel for that. Um, so, yeah, we're still collecting data, and I'm excited to see like what comes of it, uh, especially to kind of hear from these clergy about their approaches, uh, their values and how they, you know, mobilize their church to share in that. Um, but yeah, my personal experience growing up was very different. So it's kind of refreshing to see Christianity and see church in light of this project. I wanted to mention specifically um, that the Singing History Project is funded by the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship. Uh, and so the funds for that project has been provided by them and it's been great working with Dr. Body. That's deep stuff, that's deep stuff. Thank you for sharing that. Sabrina. Okay, um, I was actually, I just realized right now as I was thinking about the question that I'm kind of going backwards in time, but I like where I'm going. Um, so growing up um, in the Bay Area, it's, you know, it's full of culture, full of different races. Um, and we were taught about colonization in elementary school. And yes, and we were encouraged to use our voices to advocate for social changes. I remember in high school, um, me and a whole bunch of other teenagers, um, we were protesting to free Tukey Williams um, to, to get him off death row. Um, and that's the kind of stuff I love. Now I'm doing decolonization and anti-racist practices research with Carrie Arroyo, IGA for her, but I'm also on the race equity work team doing something similar. So I work with curriculum and research. So sometimes I'll go through like books or I, I have a huge book list that of books that I think are anti-racist that should be in the School of Social Work. I'm just kind of going through those. Um, but yeah, I'm doing that and also looking for a way for teachers to skim through the text that we have with an anti-racist lens. So I'm currently looking for research on that or if there's anything out there in the world to help make the space more inclusive. So, yeah. Thank you both for sharing that. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question as we close out. This is your opportunity to speak to white institutions, white folks in leadership roles, white friends, what have you. What would you like to see? Um, what's necessary for 
the white community, those who, whether knowingly or not, maintain white power structures. We've already talked about the dismantling and disruption that needs to happen. And we know it's, it's, it's in the structures and systems. It's not just interpersonal to, to end, not, I say end, I don't like saying end racism because I don't know if that's possible, um, but to create more, more spaces of more just communities and spaces and institutions, I do believe that's possible. Um, what would you want to say to them if, if you had their ear, if you were standing before, um, you may not be prepared for this question because I kind of thought of it as you were, you, you both were talking, but if you were standing before them, what are some things or one thing you would want them to, to engage in, to do, to stop, to change? Maybe, maybe think about Baylor or maybe think about your church context or um, the government, what have you? I, the first thing that came to my mind was action. There needs to be action. And I think a true ally, right? As you were saying in class, someone who will go to war with you, someone who will lose their life with you, for you. Um, it's, it's time to let go of the things that you're benefiting from and make space for people who are just as capable. That's good. Christian? Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Um, it's a tough one. I think I'll, I'll speak as if to Baylor, which is a Christian university or a church context. Um, first thing, separate your faith from your politics. Uh, I think that white Christian nationalism is a terrible seed that is always growing. Um, and I think that for you to continue to call yourself a Christian, continue to um, claim that this is a faith that you follow, but to ignore the suffering of your literal brothers and sisters, or to think that we're somehow unequal in God's eyes is hypocrisy. Um, yeah, I, I need the hypocrisy to stop. <laughs> Good. Good. I don't know what else. To <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. That's good. You both, hopefully, there are people who will be listening to this podcast and they'll take heed to, to what you're saying. I'm going to answer that question as I close. I would say to those who are in positions of power, my white brothers and sisters in positions of power, stop trying to lead the change when it comes to racism. Take second chair. Allow people of color to lead. What I need from, from my white friends, my allies, and I had this conversation last night with someone who is a true ally, is them leading in their community. Because there are many people that won't listen to me or the two of you. 
but they'll listen. They have the relationship equity. They'll listen to our white brothers and sisters. But because of self-preservation, the natural tendency for self-preservation, the disconnect from having the embodied experience of, of racism being exacted upon you and not truly understanding what, what that feels like in your body from the microaggressions to the, to the most blatant acts. You cannot lead. You have to make space. But not even so much making space like allowing us, letting us, making space by stepping aside and following. I try to get people to understand if you if you if you really study black history to bring it back to that you will find that black people have been some of the most forgiving hospitable some might even say naive they take our self defense as aggression labeled it as as aggression that we're this dangerous group of people and that's far from the truth. We're not typically trying to lead or exact revenge upon white people. We want equity and equality. We want the residue of the past to be cleansed, to be erased in terms of how we're treated, how we're seen we want to breathe. That's what I would say. So I think between the three of us, we just change the world. <laughs> we just changed the world. At least planted a seed. At least planted a seed. I, I, am, I am so grateful. I am so grateful for this conversation. I usually follow my gut. I usually, if it's really there, if it, if it won't leave me, and I usually regret when I don't follow my gut. And so I, I reached out to Dr. Body, and I want to give a shout out to Dr. Body. Talk about black history, influencer. Um, yes, that class that she has, Disrupting Racial Disparities in Healthcare. What, yep. at a PWI? Yep, yep. <laughs> I think we'll look back in, in history and we'll, we'll look at figures, people like Dr. Body, um, but I want to give her her flowers now. So, so Dr. Body, if you, if you listen to this podcast, we honor you and we, we're grateful for you. Um, but I, I knew that there would be so much insight, so much that you, you could bring to the table and share. And I wanted to share my platform, whatever small platform I have with, with you, with you all. And I'm grateful that you agreed to come on and share your heart, your life, um, your insights boldly um, and brilliantly. And so thank you for being a part of Intersections this week. Thank you. Thank you. You can follow the work that is going on with Sabrina's organization, BLMSW, Black Leaders Moving Social Work, on Instagram at blm.sw. Again, please order your copy of my book, Open Wounds, from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or FortressPress.com. You can also watch my documentary short film, open wounds 
at openwoundsdoc.com. That's openwoundsdoc.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening and joining me at the intersections. Thank you.